0: Physician burnout is in part a product of allowing others to define our jobs, our field, and our goals.
1: Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the February 5th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objectives are to give a brief overview of the current pressures on clinicians facing COVID, describe how depression relates to burnout, and discuss how we can overcome our vulnerabilities to burnout while facing the COVID epidemic, as we did when we faced the HIV epidemic. With us today, we have Glenn Jordan Treisman, professor of psychiatry and medicine and director of the AIDS psychiatry services at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Treisman, thank you for your time today.
0: Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. This is Glenn Treisman speaking, and this is the second part of a conversation about the impact of COVID on physicians and physician burnout. In the first part of my talk, I talked about um, repeated social defeat as a cause of major depression and burnout. And today I wanna talk a little bit more about how that's occurring and what are the problems we face as clinicians in the current world. I'm gonna talk about both COVID but also about other things that burn physicians out. So there are a number of factors that are undermining physician autonomy that is independent practice. One is the development of these huge mega corporations of medical care, hospital chains, and big corporations that are controlling what we do. And more and more physicians are being pushed to comply with the agenda of those organizations. There are also governmental regulations that impede clinical autonomy, other professions or would-be professions that provide services at lower rates, complex uh, litigation and um, CYA testing and interventions, and a proliferating uh, set of administrators who are directing their organizations to the bottom line and trying to rid organizations of intractable members. That's a direct quote from one of the papers on the problems in bureaucratic medicine. So this is a paper by Ralph Reed and Evans. It's about the deprofessionalization of medicine. As bureaucratic protocols based on cost containment seek to homogenize heterogeneous conditions and events, and the organizational penalties for being wrong or not conforming to the system, multiply, there would be a devaluation of concepts such as initiative, innovation, utilization of experimentally based clinical hunches. Those are autonomous concepts. The absence risk will result to initiates depression being imbued with a sense of compliance, not a sense of judgment. It's ironic because two hours ago, I was trying to explain to somebody why my patient who has dysautonomia, postural orthostatic hypotension, thrombocytosis, anemia, and about 10 other medical conditions who's depressed and has never gotten well in years of treatment should stay in the hospital while I try to figure out how these things go together. Um, and them say, well, look, she's on a psych unit and it's major depression, and our length of stay is supposed to be this. And that's a chronic problem in my world. This is from another paper by Burnett. Um, it's called Restoring Medical Professionism. The essence of medical professionalism is placing dedication to the welfare of patients above the physicians personal or proprietary interest. That is, we are supposed to do what's best for our patient, not what's best for our pocketbook. And that's why in the vows of medicine, we say we will take a usual and customary fee. When I was younger and I was a plumber, when someone called me in the middle of the night, I charged them a lot to come out. As a physician, it's part of what we do, and we charge a usual and customary fee for what we do. However, We're becoming deprofessionalized as a consequence of convergent factors, and those are conversion to a business model. I am told all the time, medicine is a business, the business of medicine. We're a business. We're just a business. Nobody leaves their estate to a business. Nobody calls the building in a business the so-and-so building. No one dedicates their resources to businesses. Businesses are not philanthropic. They don't get tax shelters the way we do. And they aren't nonprofits. We are a service, and we are supposed to be taking care of patients and not taking care of profits. The addition of intermediary financial control, and then this incredible, powerful consumerism that we've seen blossom in the last 30 years, in which patients more and more consider themselves customers and clients rather than patients. Uh, This is from Sir Graham Cato, who's the president of the UK Regulatory Body, when he said this. We could be moving away from roles, doctor, nurse, etc., and toward practices. In the future, instead of being licensed to practice medicine, people be licensed to perform appendectomies or fetal ultrasound. It wouldn't matter whether it was a nurse or a doctor. I don't see the barriers between doctors and other professionals at either the undergraduate or postgraduate level as being inflexible as they have in the past. And he says... This is based on theory, you don't need to know about the internal combustion engine in order to be able to drive. And in clinical practice, doctors trained in this way do not perform any less well. Now, when he said this, it was the very beginning of the opiate epidemic. And I wanna assure you, just driving the car and seeing patients as clients and treating pain as a vital sign, which by the way, if you did a degree in physiology, you know, pain is not a vital sign. Breathing is a vital sign. So, if you are just the guy who drives the car and you don't understand the internal combustion engine, you don't make diagnoses, you don't think critically, and your practice is open to persuasion by all kinds of outside factors. These are suggestions uh, from that meeting pay for performance in healthcare, such as airline on time performance, and the patient centered medical home should emphasize performance based metrics and payments based on measures of patient satisfaction and experience. I run the pain service at Johns Hopkins Hospital. My patients are not satisfied. They're angry, they're going through opiate tapers, they're in a lot of pain, the food is not good, and they don't like being in the hospital. When they're better, they are unbelievably grateful. But at the time, I don't go for patient satisfaction, I go for better. Going for patient satisfaction has been an error for us. Another thing that demoralizes us is the increasing intrusion into medical care of things like uh, electronic medical record. Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center reported $60 million loss, 950 jobs cut. Boston Dana-Farber cancer's lost approximately $25 million. And for every hour physicians provide direct clinical care, nearly two additional hours are spent on electronic medical records. These are all things that have been investigated, and the electronic medical record has been an enormously costly event, and it shapes physician behavior. It may not intend to shape physician behavior. It may intend to shape physician behavior, but whether it does or not, it does shape physician behavior. This is from Denmark. Denmark has spent $2.8 billion on EPIC, and they were very, very disappointed in the outcome. They said, it's hard to believe that a professional player would be able to create such a miserable product. And they had to pay another billion or so dollars to get out of their contract and get rid of it, which they did. When we're talking about patient satisfaction, another issue is this study. This was in Archives of Internal Medicine in 2012. Increased patient satisfaction was found to correlate in this study in 50,000 patients with increasing mortality. And I love to show this. I show it whenever I get a chance. We are focused on increasing patient satisfaction, and we don't think about what patient satisfaction correlates with. But in this study, it correlated with increased mortality. Does that mean it's causing the mortality? Don't know. But I think that before I made everybody focus on patient satisfaction, I'd want to investigate that if I was an evidence-based clinician. On the right side of the slide, I have uh, Medicare to begin basing hospital payments on patient satisfaction scores. That came out six months after the patient satisfaction higher mortality paper came out, and it didn't affect it one bit. They said 3,000 hospitals would be affected, and the proposal would be based on patient satisfaction. And it doesn't make sense to me as a practicing clinician, and it doesn't make sense to a lot of us. I think those things were the cause of the opiate crisis. Many physicians in busy primary care practices feel like they are playing a never-ending game of whack-a-mole. They answer to a growing cadre of masters, faceless, managed care bureaucrats, managers, IT consultants, quality measurement gurus, and patients. As time grows scarcer and the rewards grow leaner, being an excellent physician while managing one's life outside the office has become increasingly challenging. This is from 2018. This is before COVID. Since COVID, it's gotten dramatically worse. This is from the opiate epidemic. Doctors felt pressured to prescribe opiates. This is a study. Um, This is in 2016. So the opiate epidemic was well underway. And they said they prescribed opiates because of administrative and regulatory criticism to avoid negative impact on joint commission, to avoid decrease in patient satisfaction scores. And 40% of doctors said their colleagues or they had been disciplined for failure to give people opiates in the emergency room. This is a paper that we wrote looking at deaths per 100,000 people from the opiate-related epidemic, and this is through 2015, and talking about what the factors were that drove the opiate epidemic. And I can just tell you, this was a conspiracy of consumerism and uh, bureaucratic direction for medicine and enthusiasm for fads that hadn't been well investigated. However, although a lot of people were conspiring, in the end, the doctors get blamed uh, this is a court case in which a, a physician uh, was sued for providing opiates and causing someone to get addicted to opiates, supposedly. And uh, the court awarded $15 million to the guy who got addicted, uh, even though the physician brought in all the evidence that the patient was suffering from chronic back pain. And this is what everybody said to do, and it was the standard of care, blah, blah, blah. They said, well, you injured this guy with opiates. You should have read the literature. Here's some papers and it's your fault. This was upheld on appeal. So you will get blamed. I will get blamed for what we do. And therefore we have to do what's right. These are from the COVID epidemic. Doctors fired after criticizing hospital for their COVID response. Hospitals tell doctors they'll be fired if they speak out about the lack of gear. These are straight out of the headlines. Nurses and doctors speaking out on safety now risk their job. Idaho doctor fired for trying to wear a mask at a Boise hospital. Doctor fired from local hospital who filed lawsuit against his employer in hospital after he was fired for raising concerns about COVID safety. This woman was fired because she was worried about COVID sweeping through her center. This is our ex-president over here, Donald Trump, who a doctor says who is working on a vaccine and was fired for questioning Trump's favorite cure for COVID, which was hydroxychloroquine. And this is a whistleblower saying that the Trump administration pressured doctors and scientists to lie about the COVID epidemic. This is an ongoing problem. And it's shocking to me that this went on and went on and went on. And the smartest, brightest people in our field were poo-pooed and ridiculed over this. This is a very famous quote. You're in a profession as a calling, not as a business. Calling which extracts from you at every turn self-sacrifice, devotion, love, and tenderness to your fellow men. This is Osler. And We are in a profession that's not a business. We are in a profession where we have to make huge sacrifices and we have to be the ones who decide what we do, not outside agencies. So who do we work for? The patient, in my opinion. Some people say the state, and when we worked for the state, we euthanized and sterilized the mentally ill. The hospital, shortening length of stay. The insurance company, decreasing expenditures. Medical organizations like the American Pain Society and um, in shocking things that happened to me as a psychiatrist, family members uh, coming to me and saying, couldn't we lock our relative up because he's spending all our money, when it's actually his or her money that, they, that the person is spending. Um, so there are pressures on us that conflict with our performance of our duty, length of stay and cost reduction, p and committees, pressure to keep patients satisfied, medical legal pressures, bioethicists for hire, and assisted suicide and euthanasia that conflict with us in terms of what we are supposed to do. Physician burnout is, in part, a product of allowing others to define our jobs, our field, and our goals. This is a quote one of the administrators said to me. You are disagreeable, Dr. Treisman. I said, I'm not disagreeable. I disagree with you. You imagine the degree of narcissism. This guy could have been president. That you have to have to say that I have a personality disorder because I disagree with an administrator about how to take care of a clinical patient. It's shocking, but it's going on all the time, and we have to be able to set the agenda for medicine, especially when there's an epidemic, and we have to defend our field. Ways to avoid burnout? Eradicate smallpox. Restrict polio to three countries in the world. Stop HIV progression, cure hepatitis C, and succeed with hepatitis B, which we are almost there. This is the famous Delta 32 double bone marrow transplant, stem cell transplant, that resulted in the first cure in the history of HIV. This is the second patient. And this is the reply to Graham Cato saying that doctors should learn to drive the car. This is Carol Black, who at the time was the president of Royal College of Physicians. We are taught to take a great deal of information, synthesize it, process it to come up with a differential diagnosis or diagnoses, work through possible treatments, institute and discussion with our patients the best possible treatment, and feel confident about changing if it's not working or working outside protocols. When COVID came along, we rapidly started to try various things for our patients because they were dying. We gave them convalescent serum. We tried medications like remdesivir. We tried all kinds of different things. And some of them worked and some of them didn't. Now we're at the point where we're vaccinating people. However, we didn't need people to tell us how to do those things. We know how to do those things, and we are best left doing them. So conclusions on how to avoid burnout. We are subjected to pressures to be responsible for patient outcomes, but we are also pressured to consider hospital finances length of stay the Joint Commission time and even profit in our care of patients. The term moral injury has been applied to the conflicting expectations doctors are living with. It's not my term, but I think it's a good term. We have to advocate for our patients and our colleagues because it's part of our professional responsibility. And since when things go wrong, we are going to be held responsible, it's very important that we do what's right and have the authority to do what's right in medical situations. I'll end with this slide, which I think is hilarious. This says, the decrease in revenue seems to correlate with the decision to get rid of all the doctors. Nobody comes to Johns Hopkins for the statue. Nobody comes to a hospital for the food. People come for the healthcare professionals that work there, that work tirelessly to try to save their lives, that have risked everything in this COVID epidemic, including their own well-being, and uh, we've lost colleagues to this COVID epidemic, to try to help sick patients. And without us, there is no medicine. Thank you all again for inviting me. I hope this is useful to you. I am not burnt out. And if you are feeling burnt out, come get help from us. We care about you and we need you. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you again, Dr. Treisman, and we're looking forward to part two next week. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.